Well, good morning once again. Can I uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14? I'm sure most of you here, if not all of you, have been following the news. And uh, <laughs> it's not very uplifting uh, as we follow it. Uh, I don't have to tell you that we are living at a time in American history where it seems the very future of our republic um, seems uncertain, even at the verge of collapse. Um, as American patriot Thomas Paine once said about the days in which he lived, uh, the early days of our nation, we had just declared independence from Great Britain, and we're fighting for our right to exist as a free and sovereign people. Paine said the famous words, these are the times that try men's souls. As Americans, we are living in perilous times. It shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly what Paul the Apostle said the conditions would be right before Jesus came back to the earth to establish his kingdom. You've all read, of course, 2 Timothy 3. Let me read you the first four verses again. Paul said, but I know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Folks, that's the evening news. That's the evening news. You know, there are things that breed fear and anxiety in our hearts. One of these is uncertainty for the future. This, this was exactly the place Jesus' disciples found themselves in as John 14 opens up, and uh, which we are studying at the moment. Let me just say this once again for the sake of the new folks. <clears throat> when we came to chapter 13 in our study in John's Gospel a few weeks ago, I said then we find ourselves roughly 15 hours from Jesus' crucifixion. But more specifically, chapters 13 through 17 cover a six-hour period from roughly 6 p.m. to midnight. Now, this was such an important six-hour period that John spent one quarter of his gospel recording it for us. The evening began in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Feast of Passover together. After Judas left the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ, uh, Jesus instituted communion with his remaining disciples and proceeded to give them one final teaching before his death. The purpose of this final teaching was to prepare and encourage them for what lay ahead. In just a short period of time, he would be returning back to his Father in heaven, leaving them to continue the work he had begun on the earth. This extremely important discourse, it's interesting, only John covers it. Uh, you only find it in John's Gospel. The synoptics, Matthew, uh, Luke, and John, uh, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't uh, cover it, but John does. And uh, this discourse covers John 13 through 16, culminating in chapter 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer to his Father. Even though that was uh, directed to his Father, John wrote it down. We can learn a lot from that uh, prayer, which we will when we get there. But um, these chapters contain, in essence, our Lord's farewell message to his disciples, where he endeavors to comfort their hearts in the present, that's true, but also to prepare their hearts for the future. Now, guys, I bring all this up because many of the things Jesus told his disciples to encourage their hearts, listen, also applies to us as God's people living right now. That's why I bring all this up. Okay, The things that Jesus shared with his disciples that evening, things that were designed to strengthen them for what lay ahead or what lie ahead, listen, are universal in scope. Are universal in scope. They apply to all God's people living in any age, facing whatever problem we're facing. These things are universal. Yeah, some of them were unique to Jesus' disciples that night. There are many things I want to tell you. I can't, though, not yet because you're not willing or not able, I should say, to receive them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all truth 
and reveal to you the things I can't tell you at this moment. Well, that happened on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The Spirit was poured out, the church was born, and the Spirit has been teaching God's people from the Word the things that the disciples that night weren't ready to, to, to hear. They were not uh, spiritually mature enough to really grasp the things that the Spirit would want to go on to teach them. So those things were unique. But much of what Jesus said that night applies again to all of God's people, no matter what time in history they were living, what problems they were facing, because much of what he said is universal in its scope. So take heart, take heart. Jesus starts off this important discourse in chapter 14, verse 1, with a command in the Greek. And I point that out because it is a command where he said, let not your heart be troubled. I mean, this admonition by the Lord is not surprising. As we have said before, he had just moments earlier announced one of the 12 was a traitor. And then he goes on to say that Peter, the unofficial leader of the disciples, big, burly, strong Peter, was going to deny the Lord not once but three times. And then the bombshell revelation is I'm going away. And guess what? You can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. But where I'm going, you can't follow me. And that's why Jesus then commands his disciples. You can understand. Put yourself in their position that evening. Um, to understand what they were feeling, but also to drink in what Jesus had to say, not just to them, but down through the centuries to us today. That's why he said, let not your hearts be troubled. By saying this, Jesus wasn't telling them not to start being troubled. They were already troubled. He knew that. He was giving them a command to stop being troubled. Guys, please understand that God never commands us to do anything without applying the power for us to do it. That's why I point out when things are a command in the Greek, because as somebody has said, God's commandments are God's enablements. God never commands us to do something that he doesn't give us the power to fulfill that command if we're willing. If we're willing. This command was tied to their faith in God, but in particular to their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. As this command to us not to be troubled is tied to our faith in God, but more specifically to our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen again, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Guys, the concept of a troubled heart involves fear. And with regard to his disciples' troubled hearts, fear for the uncertainty of the future. That's what makes us fearful. When we're not sure about the future. You've just come from the doctor. He's given you a diagnosis that you have stage 4 cancer. And you need to begin chemo and radiation immediately. Your world is thrown into chaos. You can't think of anything else. The future is now uncertain. Will I be around to see my kids grow up or my grandkids? What's going to happen to my family if I'm taken away from them? And fear grips a person's heart when they get a diagnosis like that. It can grip the hearts of a nation. When we see a nation like ours, um, possibly in the death throes uh, of its dying breath coming to an end, we, we hope not. The only hope is revival. But pray for it. The only hope for America is if God brings revival to his church and a great awakening to our nation. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. We need to pray. We are in desperate straits. I hope God's people understand that. So a troubled heart involves fear. We could paraphrase what Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 1 as, don't let your hearts continue to be fearful. After commanding them to stop being fearful or troubled, Jesus quickly follows that command with a promise that was designed to comfort their hearts. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Now, a few weeks ago when we studied that passage, we said that this statement by Jesus has both a prophetic and a cultural application attached to it, and he purposely weaves it to, causes it to dovetail. Because in doing so, he gives to us one encompassing, comforting promise. Now, you need to check out the last two studies we did in John 14. Behold, the bridegroom is coming, parts one and two, because we went into this with great detail. When Jesus told his disciples, in my father's house are many mansions, the Greek simply means rooms, abiding places, or dwelling places. Many, some of your translations may even have it that way, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I want to point this out first of all, to set the record straight about mansions in heaven. I heard a guy years ago, and uh, well, he's a one of these word of faith guys, right? And he was saying that he had a vision. God took him to heaven, and there he was walking side by side with Jesus down the golden streets. And on either side he saw beautiful mansions where the faithful saints of God lived, gorgeous mansions. But then as they kept walking down the golden street of heaven, the neighborhood started to change. It started to go from, not kidding, started to go from beautiful mansions to rickety shacks. And he said to Jesus, or he's saying this, I said to Jesus, Lord, what are these shacks doing here? You promised mansions in heaven. And the Lord Jesus said to me, these are the dwelling places of those who had no faith on the earth who never exercised faith, who never walked in victory, and so on. Now, about that time, I turned him off. So I don't know what I don't know how he finished it. I wasn't interested after that point. I mean, give me a break. That is not heaven. He was speaking out of the imagination of his own heart and not from the mouth of the Lord, Jeremiah 23, right? Heaven is not going to be a place where you have upper class, middle class, and poverty class. With regard to the idea of dwelling places in the Father's house, Jesus was using something his disciples were very familiar with to teach them a spiritual truth. Now, they would have understood immediately what he was saying. We have to kind of educate ourselves in the cultural norms and like we've been doing the last few weeks with marriage customs and things, um, it's important for us to familiarize ourselves with uh, things that they were familiar with if we're going to get the full impact of what Jesus uh, often taught in many places, right? In the Jewish mind, any reference to God's house would have immediately pointed them to the temple in Jerusalem, which, of course, goes back to the days of King Solomon, who was the one who built that first temple. <clears throat> Just quickly, the temple proper, when I say the temple proper, it means the actual building, all right? The temple proper consisted of four stone walls and a roof. Inside were two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies, or the most holy place, all right? I'm sure most of you know that. As God directed Solomon to build this temple, he had him put the four walls up, and then he told him to build out from those three of those walls, not the front, but the sides and the back, to build it out with more stones and go up three levels so that now you had rooms, three levels of rooms that went from the sides to the back. You accessed the upper rooms uh, by stairways that led to walkways, okay? I was telling first service, trying to figure out the best way to, to um, try to illustrate this, and I thought of how when we were kids, we would go on family vacations. We were a typical suburban family with a station wagon and loved to have road trips, pack up the kids and the luggage and jump on the... And we didn't have much money. Uh, my mom and dad were not wealthy people, so we drove uh, on our family vacations, and several times we went out to California to visit family, right? And, uh, of course, we didn't have a lot of money, so we stayed in these uh, travel lodges. 
You know, these motor, uh, uh, the motels, you know, uh, where all the rooms are on the outside. Of course, today everything's fancy. Everybody's got money. So you go to a, a hotel today, not a motel, a hotel where you walk in a beautiful lobby, you take your elevator up to your floor. It's all nice inside. It's wonderful, right? Got a nice coffee shop. And so breakfast uh, is provided, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't like that when I was a kid. You you check in you, you drive around to where your where your uh, you know a room was and of course there was two or three levels and you walk up a flight of stairs if you were on the second level and all the all the rooms were on the outside you doors were on the outside you you understand that right this is kind of what God told Solomon to build three levels of rooms sides and back with stairs and then walkways to access the rooms on the bottom level ground level the rooms were used for storage uh, storage that consisted of supplies that were used for the upkeep and maintenance of uh, maintenance of the temple various things that they would use uh, in temple services and all it was also in these storage rooms that the tithes of god's people that they had brought to god as offerings were then kept Tithes of oil and grain and other offerings that the people had given to God. These offerings would be stored. Some of them would be used in the worship of God. I mean, the oil uh, was used to keep the menorah burning. I think Solomon actually had ten menorahs built when he built the uh, you know the tabernacle in the wilderness. One menorah, but Solomon you know had ten, and those needed oil to keep the lights burning. The light was never supposed to go out. The flame. And so they needed a lot of oil. So they had storage rooms where they had oil kept and other things. But the stuff that they didn't use in the upkeep or the maintenance or the just the daily uh, services of the temple, they would then give to the Levites and the priests and their families. So people would bring in all these tithes of grain and oil and other things, fruits and, and vegetables and things. They give to God because that was what God had said, look, I've given you an abundance. You give to me back the, the first fruits, 10, 10%, which God didn't need, but he took as the people needed to give it. God doesn't need this idea that God needs your money. If you don't give your money, God's work is going to come to an end. Turn off that program. They're not talking for God. God doesn't need anything, okay? We need to give, though. We need to give it. And once the people brought their tithes to the temple to give to God, uh, they were put in storerooms store and divvied up between the priests and Levites and their families, who were then, that was part of the payment they received for serving God. Not to mention the meat from the sacrifices. Uh, many of these sacrifices were not completely burned up uh, as the consecration offerings and the burnt offerings. Uh, so whatever was left, and, you know, the barbecue, I was telling first service, you know, don't you, God says it's a sweet aroma. Sweet-smelling savor, the, the, the animal sacrifices. Well, who doesn't love a barbecue? I was telling first service, and I'm not saying to get anything out of anybody. But if you ever give me a gift card to a restaurant, don't make it a vegan restaurant. I am a meat eater. I love the smell of barbecue. So what were the upper rooms used for? Okay, ground level store rooms, fine for offerings and, and things to give to the priests and Levites and their families. Um, the upper levels, and you had the second level and the third level, those rooms were apartments. Apartments. Where the priests and the Levites would live for two weeks out of the year. Remember where David, the priesthood had gotten so big that they all couldn't serve God at the same time, so he divided them up into... 24 courses, and, uh, and each priest, Levite, also would uh, serve God for two weeks out of the year. Then they go home, and, and some of them lived far away. So if it was their turn to serve the Lord there at the temple, they needed a place to stay. So you had these uh, rooms, and I, and I think they were probably very simple, okay? A bed, uh, a small wooden table and chair, maybe a small oil-burning lamp for light, and that was it. They were busy all day serving God. They came, came just to crash, sleep, maybe pray a little bit, and then, and then hit the sack because they were going to be serving the next day. And it was rigorous. It was rigorous, okay? And, um, but 
But that's these these were rooms where priests and Levites would would stay while they were serving there in the temple. Now, if you really want to get a kind of a scriptural picture of this tonight or this week, check out Nehemiah 13 verses 4 to 13. Nehemiah 13 verses 4 to 13, because you will see these storerooms talked about, and uh, and and one that was used for a unsavory character that had no business living in the house of God. There's a lot of unsavory leaders in the house of God, and God's throwing not a few of them out, okay? And uh, Nehemiah threw this joker out, but you can read about that in your own, okay? Eventually, the Babylonians destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. It was later rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. You can read about that in the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Roughly 400 years later, the temple proper. Now, when they came back from Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple, it was a low-budget operation. They didn't have the wealth Solomon had. I mean, he, he created one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But when they came back, the temple was destroyed. They tried to use whatever materials that had been pulled down to start rebuilding it. It was a low-budget deal, okay? The old men wept. As the young men rejoiced, they had never seen Solomon's temple. We're going to have a temple again. But they had never seen Solomon's temple. And the old men cried because they knew what Sol- the glory of Solomon's temple, right? And so the prophet, God sent the prophet to the people and said, don't weep. <laughs> the glory of this new temple will eclipse the glory of the old one. What does that mean? The light of the world was going to stand in that place. The light of the world was going to stand in that place the God of the universe. And we studied that. We studied John chapter 8. But 400 years later, after this low-budget temple was erected, it was greatly beautified by Herod the Great, and the whole temple precinct now was massively expanded. Um, Herod wanted to build an entire precinct. Uh, so he... He uh, leveled the top of Mount Moriah, and he built a flat base uh, held up by uh, columns and um, arches that extended this whole area uh, 30 plus uh, yards, uh, acres I should say, and uh, of course the temple proper was there, but that was a small building, a big building, but small compared to the whole precinct now. When you're reading your Bibles that Jesus was teaching in the temple, he wasn't, you say, was he allowed in the actual temple? No, no, no. He was not, the, the, the Greek word is, uh, I think, naos, which means the temple precinct. And, and what they would do is because um, Herod had built all these colonnades and archways and it gave rise to various little cubby nooks and crannies all over the temple precinct, rabbis would walk with their disciples and stop there in maybe a little secluded area, and they would teach their disciples, and so Jesus did the same thing, all right? Jesus did the same thing. But um, the temple that Herod beautified and massively expanded uh, its precincts was the one that was around in Jesus' day. That was my point. That was the one that existed during the life of Jesus and his earthly ministry. The original architecture that God had Solomon incorporate into that first temple was maintained. Herod the Great was, uh, was, was considered king of the Jews, but he wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob. But Jacob was the descendant of the Jewish people, not Esau. And so it stuck in the Jews' guts that they had to call this guy king of the Jews. He's not our king. He's not even Jewish. But the Romans liked him, right? See, he was always trying to ingratiate himself with the, with the, Roman popu- with the uh, Jewish people, and um, so he made sure when he beautified the temple, he, he did it as closely as he could to Solomon's temple because he knew they all revered and loved, you know, the idea of that temple. And so it seems that he incorporated the same architecture into the new temple that God had led Solomon to incorporate into that first temple. In other words, he built out the sides of the temple, the sides in the back, made three levels and had storerooms uh, on all three levels doing the same thing that God had uh, Solomon do so many years earlier. 
And uh, these became, again, the dwelling places for the priest to live in, uh, once again built, connected to, and as extensions of, listen, the Father's house. Of course, the earthly temple in Jerusalem was a model of the true temple of God in heaven. You realize that, right? The, the temple that God directed Solomon to build was really a copy of the true temple of God in heaven. In Revelation chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet sounds, a bunch of things happen, but one of them is recorded in Revelation eleven nineteen. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail upon the earth. So the temple of God revealed in heaven. And guys, Jesus is using the earthly temple and its dwelling places for the priests of God as an illustration of the true temple in heaven. Last time we talked about how Jesus' words in, in, in John 14, 2 and 3, uh, where he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you and you can't follow me, but I'll come back to get you someday. We said that those words applied to the Jewish wedding customs of a bridegroom after he and his bride were officially uh, betrothed, technically married. He would then go away to his father's house because that's where his inheritance was and he would actually build onto his father's house a, a chamber for them to live in, an apartment uh, called the bridal chamber and it was built right onto the father's house. The walls of his father's house became the wall, one of the walls of his new apartment that he would, when finished, it took about a year, would go get his bride, bring her back to the bridal chamber. The marriage was consummated and they would live in the father's house, basically. And so we talked about that, right? And how that applies his words to that idea, the marriage customs of the Jewish people. But this also applies to the fact that, as we are told in Revelation uh, chapter 1 and chapter 5, excuse me, chapters 1 and 5, that by redeeming us, Jesus has made us, listen, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Priests who would be living in the Father's house in heaven someday, not for two weeks out of the year, but for all eternity. And some really think the dwelling place is actually our new glorified bodies um, that we will have as we live in very close proximity to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in heaven for all eternity. Back to John 14, verse 2. Again, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As we have already said, this is the first place in the New Testament where the rapture is alluded to. Now, we've already gone into this in great detail, so get uh, behold the bridegroom is coming part one we went into this in great detail but if you're new with us the rapture is basically where God evacuate, evacuates his church off the earth before his judgments begin to fall uh, it's an evacuation because God said he promised us he would not punish the righteous with the wicked uh, the tribulation period is God pouring out his wrath on a Christ rejecting world yes many get saved but the church has al is already saved. We're, we are, have already received Christ into our hearts. So he evacuates us you know, off the earth in a moment, twinkling of an eye. We, uh, we are taken into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and then taken to heaven to, uh, to, uh, the, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? We've talked about that. But then verse 4, uh, verse four Jesus went on to say, and Where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, I love Thomas, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, I have named this message the only way to heaven. Am I hearing something com coming? I'm hearing a kind of a low thud. You didn't hear that? Okay. Is that something with our sound system? Something still on? Okay. I didn't know if it was coming out of the... Uh, the uh, base unit. Okay. 
But, but again, I, I've named this message the only way to heaven. Now, most of you in this room know, know the only way to heaven. Uh, this is not to inform you, just to remind you of what the Bible says because we're living in a time in our country where a lot of people, even religious people, don't know the way to heaven. They think they do, but they have no clue, okay? Almost all the people on earth who believe in a divine being that created everything and to whom we must someday stand before and give an account to have been raised to believe in what theologians call a works-slash-righteousness system of salvation. Or in other words, they have been taught that the way into heaven is by keeping rules, laws, ceremonies, and other religious works of righteousness. And if they do, listen, they will earn heaven. But even though most people grew up like me, being taught that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, the Bible teaches that there are no good people. We are all fallen sinners who don't deserve heaven. All of us. We are born into this life as fallen rebels. Uh, you kind of see that with your babies. <laughs> Sorry. I know they're your little angels. <laughs> but they're fallen angels. <laughs> and you need to teach them, right? How to be kind. And how to share. And how to tell the truth. Because they have a raw little sin nature that just comes out. And it's up to us to teach them how to, you know, obey uh, God and obey our rules as their parents and so on. Um, but there are no good people, the Bible says, uh, apart from those who have received Christ. And uh, this is something that Paul the Apostle made abundantly clear in Romans 3, where he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not any. God's word makes it crystal clear on this subject. God's word is crystal clear on this subject that nothing we do or don't do is going to earn us heaven because salvation is a gift we receive by faith, not a reward we earn through our works. I'll just read you two of the classic passages on this. We can write them, you know them, I'm sure. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved. Grace means a gift. Grace means getting something you don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. You had nothing to do with it. I tell people, look, because people are always wanting to take credit for their salvation. And I'm talking about religious folks that are not saved, okay, who think they're going to heaven because they go to Mass and do all this you know, stuff we used to do as Catholics, right? Um, I just tell people that something's just very simple. I said, look, the only thing you and I contributed to our salvation was the sin. That's it. All right? The Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of your works. Lest any should boast in heaven. God doesn't want people standing around boasting in heaven how wonderful they were, they deserved heaven. Here I am because I was worthy. No, he doesn't want any of that. Paul said it in Titus 3, verse 5, to, to Titus, a young pastor. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It wasn't our religious works that caused us to be saved. It was his mercy. He sent his son to die for us. And all those who put their faith in Jesus will receive salvation. Eternal life is a free gift, not a, 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 a reward that you've earned, but a gift that you receive by faith, right? Now, Jesus here in John 14 made it clear that the, the way to heaven is not a path we walk in the way of works. It's a person we know. 14 verse 6, very clear. In other words, Christianity is built, folks, listen, not on principles, but on a person. Very important. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. And you know, Christianity is... I don't like to think of it as a religion. It's a relationship. But for the sake of this argument, Christianity is the only religion on the face of the planet that, um, is, not, it, that is built on its founder. If you take Muhammad from Islam, if you take Buddha from Buddhism, Confucius from Confucianism, um, nothing would change. Nothing in those systems would change. <clears throat> Because those religions are not built on their leaders. Yes, on their teachings, but not on them personally. 
But if you remove Christ from Christianity, it ceases to exist. Because Christianity is inseparably, inextricably linked to and built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's just the way it is, right? Only Jesus, the sinless Son of God, could have paid the price for our sins and rescue us from the judgment that is coming. Folks, the big problem with legalism is that it tries to ignore or at very least diminish Jesus' death with regard to salvation. Legalists, and I'm defining legalists as those who believe that keeping laws, commandments, rituals, and religious ceremonies will get a person into heaven, well, they give Jesus' death in some ways lip service. I mean, they don't ignore it completely. They just don't give it the weight it deserves. They say Jesus' death and resurrection will kind of get your foot in the door of salvation. But now you have to work to finish the process. In other words, Jesus' death on Calvary's cross made salvation possible. But now it's up to you to earn salvation slash eternal life in its entirety. Again, by going to church, keeping sacraments, helping out the local food kitchen, whatever. All these things these folks teach that believe this, legalists, all these things they teach and, and many other things as well, they say are necessary for a person to earn, listen, full salvation, whatever that is. Full salvation. I mean, how a person can be partially saved and needing to finish the work so as to achieve full or complete salvation, that's a mystery to me. It's not biblical. This is the very issue that Paul the Apostle dealt with when he wrote to the Galatians. Now, Galatia was a region in modern Turkey. Had many churches, okay? And um, after Paul would, went into that area, preached the gospel, a lot of folks got saved, churches were planted. Paul moved on, but when he left... Uh, you had a group of characters that were uh, Pharisees that were called Judaizers. What does that mean? They, they would come in after Paul and they would try to Judaize the new converts to Christianity back into the old ways of the law and Moses. So they'd come in and say, well, you know, Paul, you know, he's not really an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve. They would run Paul down and say, now look, you want to believe in Jesus? That's fine. That, that's important. But you first have to be circumcised, keep the law of Moses. See, because that'll get you fully into salvation. Then believe in Jesus. Paul was livid when he heard this. He said in Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh? And Paul is saying, how did you get saved? How, how did the Holy Spirit come into you when you got saved? Was it through the works of the law or by the hearing of the gospel and just putting your faith in Christ? Well, of course, it was a rhetorical question. I mean, he knew they knew. So why are you listening to these guys? that are telling you, well, now that you're kind of saved, you are just kind of got your foot in the door of salvation, you need to do all these religious works that Moses gave us to finish the process, and so you're fully redeemed, fully com completed in your, in your salvation. You see, legalists believe that Jesus started the work of salvation for us, but now we have to finish it, again, through our works, going to church, keeping commandments, getting baptized, praying rosaries, lighting candles. We did all of that, in the Catholic Church, and I was a Catholic. Even though on the cross Jesus said, it is what? Finished. It is finished. These legalists, they kind of think that what he really meant to say was, well, it's almost finished. Seriously. It's almost finished. No. Jesus is saying, but now you've got to do your part. You've got to finish the work. Uh, he began. Well, how do I do that? By going to church and, and doing these, uh, keeping the ceremonies and sacraments and all these things, right? And depending on what group you belong to, the list gets pretty long. See, guys, that's the difference between law and grace, between religion and Christianity. Religion is based on law and says do. Do. 
as if you want, in other words, if you want to please God and earn heaven, you got to do. Go to church and do all these works, right? Christianity is based on grace and says, that says done. Christianity based on grace and says done, as in it is finished. The word religion comes from the Latin word religio, which has a meaning influenced by the verb religare, which means to bind in the sense of binding on somebody an obligation. The dictionary defines obligation as duty, which in turn is defined as a thing which a person ought to do, a thing which is right to do. Therefore, guys, religion is an obligation or duty to do certain right things. You say, what are those right things? Well, again, it depends on what group you've connected yourself to. They'll tell you what those right things are. And if a person is faithful to do what their religion says constitutes good works or right things, then the person will earn a place in heaven when they die. That's religion. The way to heaven is confusing to many. I'm thinking about today. A lot, every person who has grown up in America who believes in God believes they know how to get to heaven. They know how to get to heaven. And it's always associated about, about living a good life, what I'm doing for God. That's why Jesus brought this up. Because he didn't want any confusion. Of course, this isn't the only place. I'm just saying, though. He brought this up because he didn't want any confusion. Thomas was honest enough to say, Lord, I'm confused. I, I don't know the way. How, how, how can we know the way? Um, you know, where I go, you know, and the way you know, I, we don't know the way. And that's why Jesus again responded in verse 6, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, verse 6 of John 14 contains the sixth of seven I am statements that John built his gospel around. The phrase I am is the name of God. As first expressed in the book of Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 when God said to Moses go to Pharaoh tell him to let my people go and Moses said I, I don't even know your name Lord. Who, who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God says you tell him I am is sending you. I am. Right? Oh by the way that's a verb in the Hebrew. It means the becoming one. The becoming one. In John's gospel, Jesus called himself I am, the name of God. We know it as Jehovah or Yeshua. He called himself I am, coupled with seven different nouns, expressing what he wants to become to each and every person. You need peace, you need Jehovah Shalom. Uh, you need righteousness, you need Jehovah to sit canoe. He, he took the verb, the becoming one, and then connected it with a noun of what he wanted to become. To those, you know, you need a shepherd, you need Jehovah Rohi. I mean, you, you, you need somebody to lead your life, you need a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, right? But what is the main thing God wants to become to every person on the planet? He wants to become their Savior. And that was incorporated into the very name of Jesus. He's, his name is Jehovah Shua. We shorten it, or they did, to Yeshua, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name Jesus, which means God has become our salvation. Each of these seven I am statements is a declaration of divinity since they each begin with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am, God in human form, which is the theme of John's entire gospel. Check out chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I, I just think of it as a name coupled with a description. I know that people, are, I don't understand what you're saying. You know, Jehovah this and Jehovah that, I don't get it. Okay, how is that God's name? Think of it as, uh, as a, um, a name, I am Jehovah, okay, that's God's name. Think of it as a name coupled with a description. I've used this before, let me use it again. Uh, Phil Baumeyer, comma, the pastor. I am, comma, this or that is what God is saying. Okay? So far in our study of John's gospel, we have seen Jesus declare in John 6, I am the bread of life. 
John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And now in uh, and now the sixth I am statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he added something that drives skeptics and critics and religionists crazy. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, that bugs people. <laughs> I think one pastor said it well. He, he said, and I quote, this is a very radical, narrow-minded, and intolerant statement by Jesus. If there's anything that drives unbelievers crazy about us Christians, it's intolerant and narrow-mindedness. You're too narrow, they say to us. I don't mind you believing what you believe, but don't say it's the only way. The pastor said, we don't say this. It's Jesus who declared it. Call me narrow if you wish, but Jesus is the one who said, narrow is the way which leads to eternal life, and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13, right? Remember Jesus started out John 14 with the... We're done. Let me just kind of set this up for next week, okay? Remember Jesus started out John 14 with the words, let not your hearts continue to be fearful. Let not your hearts be troubled, right? You believe in God, believe also in me. And then in verse 6, he called himself by the name of God. I am. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believing in the true Jesus, guys, is the only way to heaven. There are many false Jesuses. Jesus said this. In Matthew 24, that the closer we got to his return, many false prophets in Christ would go out into the world as Satan would try to flood the zone with Jesuses, right? All having a, a different message to confuse people. Paul even said in what? 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4? He said, be careful because even now there are many who have gone out preaching another Jesus and a different gospel. Not the one we preached, not the Jesus we preached, and certainly not the gospel that we gave you. And it's only increased exponentially in our day. That's why it's so important that we as the people of God know what we believe and we can share with others. We have to, people have to believe in the true Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, great, so does Satan. He's not going to heaven. What Jesus do you believe in? Well, I, I, I believe that uh, he was the brother of Lucifer. Uh, you know, well, and, and the wrong, wrong Jesus. Uh, I believe he was my, he's Michael the Archangel. Uh, wrong Jesus. You, you have to believe in the true Jesus. Because he's the only way to heaven. Again, it's not a path you walk, it's a person you know. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, where, I don't, we don't know where you're going, Lord. How can we know the way? He didn't say, I'll Google you a map. <laughs> and I'll come back for you. I'll get you. I'll take you to be where I am. So many people believe that Jesus was a good man, even a great man, but just a man. And he was not the Son of God. Whenever we talk about those who believe that Jesus was just a great man but not God, uh, the words of C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity, come to mind. Let me read it to you quickly, okay? You, most of you probably heard it. Here's what Lewis said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis said. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who, who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or something else, a madman or something worse. But look, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. 
I mean, there are people that say Jesus was a great teacher. Who's Jesus? Oh, it's a great teacher. Well, do you believe what he taught about eternal life, that he's the only way? Oh, no, I think there's many roads that lead to heaven. Well, do you believe that he, he's God in human form? Oh, we're all ascending to Godhood. It's just ridiculous, right? You reject everything he taught about spiritual things. What makes him a great teacher in your mind? I, I don't get it, right? I mean, how anybody could say Jesus was a great religious teacher and yet reject everything he taught about himself being God, the only way to heaven. I mean, it's ridiculous and dangerous. I'll have you turn to one more scripture, we'll close. John 8. You reject Jesus' divinity, you do so at your own peril. He is not just one of many gods. He was not the first created being of Jehovah God, who now is a mighty God, but lesser than almighty Jehovah God, as the JWs teach. John, uh, Jesus says something very important in John 8, verse 24. Therefore, I, he's talking to the Pharisees, by the way, who were very religious. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll notice that the word he in verse 24 is in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek. It was added by the translators in their desire to help clarify what Jesus was saying. Uh, often it does help us. It does clarify when they put in some words to, to kind of help us understand, right? Here it doesn't. Here it, it doesn't clarify. It only clouds and confuses what Jesus was really saying, all right? Here's what Jesus really said, all right? He said, therefore I, I said to you that you will die in your sins, which means go to hell forever, if you do not believe that I am not I am he, that can, well, yeah, okay, I am he, sure, I am Messiah, I am uh, the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit, I mean, a lot of ideas out there. No, no, no. He was saying, if you don't believe that I am Jehovah God, the great I am, you will die in your sins and go to hell forever. This is a non-negotiable doctrine, guys. A lot of doctrines in the Bible that are non-essential timing of the rapture the gifts of the holy spirit are still here today we can disagree in love and we're all going to go to heaven still but if you deny the divinity of jesus that if you deny that he is the great i am second person of the trinity god almighty in human form if you deny that you will spend eternity in hell it's non-negotiable it's an absolutely essential doctrine for salvation all right, next week we'll continue. Uh, one more week, okay, um, because you all know me and I'm not done saying stuff. <laughs> but look, I think the subject, the only way to heaven, is kind of important. I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's important. We ought to have it nailed down pretty well, especially because Jesus gives it uh, a, lot of, you know, a lot of time in, in, in his discourse before the cross. So we will pick it up next week, God willing, uh, and continue the only way to heaven father we thank you for your great grace upon all of us we deserve nothing yet through christ you've given us all things and we thank you lord for your grace we thank you that you've given us your word which is truth to light our way in the darkness and deception of these last days uh, lord if we walk in its light we'll never be deceived or stumble in darkness so thank you lord give us grace to be voracious students of your word hungry uh, for every word that we might uh, grow and uh, walk in, uh, in the Spirit. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.